Revelation chapter 7 is where we'll be. We are slowing down a little bit in our series, mostly because we've entered into some parts that a little tougher in some ways. There's a lot more questions, and it would be helpful for us to kind of unravel some of those, but also just to sit and meditate on the Word a bit more in these sections because they're so encouraging, and I feel like misunderstandings can take that away. And so we are only covering the first eight verses this afternoon, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels, who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on the foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your word for how it convicts and corrects and comforts by the work of your Spirit in our hearts through the Word. And we pray that tonight as we open your Word and attend to it, you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to the churches. Humble us and help us to trust you. Help us to rejoice in the finished work of your Son on our behalf, that we might glorify you in trusting in him even more. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure how much you all follow the news. It seems like everybody is up to date on what's happening all the time, especially with everything happening in Ukraine and, and our ever-changing economy, right? Things are happening such a quick pace. But what I want to know is if you read the news or watch the news or however you take your news in, how are you responding when you see the mess in our world? What's your gut reaction when you see the wars and the uncertainty and just the, the continual tragedies that seem to just keep on coming, they keep building up? I'm sure some of us probably get angry, right? Slam our phone down or shut off the TV and start pointing fingers at who's responsible for this mess. Or maybe some of you get hopeless or sad, maybe even a little fearful, you know, longing for different days, good old days, right? When when gas was below $5 a gallon or just there was a semblance of peace in the world or a hope that things would actually get better. I don't know about you, but I often will wonder now, what's, what's going to happen to our country, our state? What's going to happen to our church if things keep headed the way they're going? What kind of world are my kids gonna grow up in? It certainly seems a lot different than the one I grew up in. 
I'm sure each of us kind of respond to the news and these things differently, but I do see one response that happens both from Christians and non-Christians. In the face of war and tragedy and death and disease and all these things we see, which we learned last week, are part of God's plan and judgment on the world, right? We see that displayed on the news. In the face of all those things, most people are asking the same question. And that question is, how in the world are we going to survive? How are we going to get through this? How are we going to endure? Or in the words of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 17, who can stand? If you remember last week when we talked about chapter 6 and we saw these seals unfolded, at the very end when everything seems so chaotic, the last question that is asked is this, who can stand? If the Lord comes in judgment, then who can stand? Who can stand in the face of God's judgment? And God knows how desperately we need an answer to that question. How much his church needs to hear the truth in that question. So God actually graciously kind of slams on the brakes in Revelation. Between the sixth and the seventh seal, God takes a whole chapter to answer the question, who can stand? Who can stand in the face of God's judgment? And really, the simple answer to who can stand is those that have been sealed by God. But then that brings up a whole other set of questions, right? What does it mean to be sealed? What does that look like? And that's what I really want to focus on today. So in these first eight verses, I want us to answer three questions about what this seal is. Really, the first question is, when does the sealing take place? The second is, who is being sealed? And the third is, what is this seal? So when does this take place, who is being sealed, and what is the seal that we're talking about? I hope by the end of this you will be encouraged, greatly encouraged, to know that you can stand in the face of judgment in Christ. So let's talk about when. When does the sealing take place? Verse 1 in chapter 7. We kind of get our answer almost in the first few words. After this, after this. Now we look at that and say, well, there it is, right? It's just the next thing that happens chronological order, right? A lot of people believe that about what's going on here, but that's not necessarily what's going on. Keep reading. After this, I saw. It's not after this, something else happened. It's after this, I saw. This isn't a sequence of events. It's a sequence of visions. Now, that vision could happen right after this, or it could have happened before. It could happen way past chapter 6. But we don't really know from these few words. But I want you to think about this not necessarily as chronological, because you'll see in the next few verses that it's not chronological. It's actually a vision of the past. Keep reading, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. There's those divine passes we talked about last week. Verse 3, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now I hope some of this at least sounds familiar if you were here last week. And if you weren't, you can read chapter 6 a little bit later and listen to Jason's sermon. It was an excellent sermon. But last week we talked about the four horsemen 
of the apocalypse. We hear all kinds of things about them, but it's these four judgments that were brought. They were brought in the world, and there's political oppression, there's war, economic woes, and even death and disease. But by the end of chapter 6, we have mountains going into the ocean. We have people calling out for the rocks to fall and crush them. And then you read chapter 7, and what do you see? Verse 1, verse 3, the earth, the sea, the trees are all unharmed. Judgment hasn't come yet. It hasn't wiped out the earth. So it seems to be that this is before chapter 6. And there's another clue here because we have four horsemen or four horses, and then we have these four winds. And it seems like there's a connection there that John's making, and there is. The connection actually goes back to Zechariah chapter 6. Let me read this for you, and you can put these two things together. Zechariah 6. Again, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots coming out from between the two mountains. The first chariot had red horses, the second had black horses, the third had white horses, and the fourth had dappled horses, all of them strong. There's our four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now listen to what Zechariah says. Zechariah answered and said to the angel, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. See, these four horsemen are going to bring these four winds. They are going to bring this judgment. And so what we have here is Jesus giving John a vision of what happened before chapter 6. It's a flashback. We're used to flashbacks, aren't we? In TV shows and movies where you see a character act a certain way and then you get a flashback to their childhood where they learn something or something happened to them that explains what's going on there. Why would there be a flashback in chapter 7? Because at the end of chapter 6, you get through that thing and the expectation is you read that and think, no one made it. No one's going to survive this day of wrath. Who can stand in the face of a holy God? And God says, wait one second. Let me go back before the seals are broken and let me show you who can stand. Because my plan isn't just a plan of judgment, it's a plan of redemption. And that's why God graciously gives us this vision. So we've seen now when these things are happening. Let's talk about who are the ones that are being sealed. Verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then we get this list. You have 12,000 from each of these tribes listed in this order here. Now, you might look at that and think, okay, well, that's easy. Obviously, who's being sealed? It's the nation of Israel. These are ethnic Jews. This is literal. It must be because it's listed out and numbered right in front of us. And so John is basically saying we have a remnant of Israel that will be saved through the tribulation. I know that sounds very straightforward at first, but if you start to think about it, there's a lot of problems with this. The first problem is, well, if all these judgments are happening right now, if these seals are being unfolded before us, like we talked about last week, then what happened to all the Gentiles? Did they not get saved? What happened to the rest of the Jews? This is a remnant. This is 144,000. Then what happened to all the other Jews? Now, a lot of you might have heard all kinds of explanations from this. I know that if you've heard explanations from more the dispensational camp, which I know that many of you were probably taught this, I was taught this in college, 
they solve this with basically saying, well, all of this tribulation, all the stuff you see in chapter 6 is all future. You have to have a future great tribulation of the church. And in order for these Jews, these 144,000 to be saved, you have to get the church out of there, the Gentiles. And so there's a secret rapture. You've heard of this? The secret rapture where Jesus comes and the Gentiles are lifted out. The Jews, they realize their mistake. They trust in Jesus. And these Jews are the ones that are sealed. They're actually protected physically, most of them believe. So they can't die, and they preach the gospel. And then any Gentile that comes to faith during that time, at the end of all things, you have two groups of people. You have Israel, the nation, and then you have the church. I'm sure many of you probably have heard that. Some of you might even believe that. It's been incredibly popularized over the last few decades. It's only a couple hundred years old, but it's very popular. Maybe most popular because of Left Behind books. Anybody read those? Never kid? Oh, yeah, see, scared me to death by the way, made me not really like the book of Revelation very much. Now, look, if you believe these things, I'm not trying to say that you're not a Christian. You've lost your salvation. I'm not even trying to knock people like MacArthur, who has been faithful in a lot of ways. But I believe they're wrong on the book of Revelation and this 144,000. I think we should understand this number not as a literal number, not as a remnant of these Jews Certainly not as 144,000 anointed Jehovah Witnesses. This 144,000 is a symbolic number, like almost every other number in the book of Revelation, isn't it? And this number represents the entire people of God. This is true Israel. This is the true church made up of both Jew and Gentiles. All the redeemed people of God that are saved by the Lamb. And the great multitude that we'll talk about next week in verse 9 is the same group. There's one people of God in the end. Now let me show you where I get that so you're not just believing me without any reasons. So look at verse 3. John actually calls the 144,000 another name in verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed who? The servants of our God servants, or if you want to go real literal, slaves there, slaves of our God. Now, John actually likes to use this phrase. He uses it a number of times in the book of Revelation. You can look later if you want. In chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 20, 19, 2, 19, 5, and 22, 3. And every time he uses the servants of God language, it's describing the whole people of God. Now, Paul uses this quite a bit as well, doesn't he? He calls himself a bondservant, a slave of God. And it's all those that are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin that are included among the number of the servants of God, not just this anointed group of 144,000. Now, secondly, turn to Revelation 14. A few pages over here, Revelation 14. And we'll get another picture of this 144,000 with a few more details this time. Help us understand a little bit more about this group. Revelation 14, verse 3. And they, that's the 144,000, were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from Israel? No. From where? From the earth. All over the earth. That's the idea there. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Come back to that in a second. It is these who follow the Lamb 
Jesus, wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind. Not just the nation of Israel, but from all mankind. As the first fruits of God and of the Lamb. What group of people from the nations, from the earth, trusting in the Lamb are the first fruits of God? That's describing the church. That's describing the people of God. All those who look to Christ in faith, old and new. Now what's going on here with these men who have not defiled themselves with women? Well, this is where you can get into a real problem if you start to take this literally. Because now it's 144,000, not just Jews, but celibate Jewish men in 144,000. You get a very specific group of people here. Or could this be that this is, again, symbolizing the purity and the holiness of these people? In Ezekiel 9, we don't have time to go there, the people of God that are marked out, that are sealed, are merely the class of people that haven't committed themselves to idolatry. That's the idea here, the purity here. It's not just these 144,000 Jews. It's the people of God throughout all time trusting in Jesus, and he is the one making them holy. And let me give you one more reason back in chapter 7. Turn back to 7. And that's this list. This list which I'm sure sounds familiar, this list of these tribes, but this is a very unique, almost stylized kind of list. You might have noticed, I don't know if you did when we read through it, there's two tribes missing. Two normal tribes. This is the only time this list appears in this form in the whole Bible. There's lots of listings of the tribe, and there's some variants of these, but pretty much they're all very similar except for this list. Dan is missing. Dan is actually replaced, it seems, by Levi. Levi was a son of Jacob, but Levi was always the one left out because they didn't get any land. Not left out in the sense of the... Uh, inheritance, but they were left out of these lists. Another person that's left out is Ephraim. Ephraim was included usually. That was the son of Joseph, but he's actually replaced with Joseph here. The idea here is that Joseph, remember, Jacob actually took two of Joseph's sons and said, those are going to be the two tribes. He adopted them into his family. But Ephraim and Dan were known as idolaters throughout the Old Testament. You can go look at this later, Judges 18 and 1 Kings chapter 12. They were known for them running after false gods. So this list seems to be organized in a way to show that these are the people committed to their Lord. And even more strange probably is who's first. Who's the first tribe? Judah. Judah's not the firstborn. Judah is where the Messiah comes. And just a few chapters ago, we saw the lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. This is a people group following the lion of the tribe of Judah, committed to holiness as God's people. And even more so, the numbers itself reveal this. We have 12 tribes from the Old Testament, 12 for the 12 apostles in the New, and then this number 1,000, 1,000 for the Jew is like, It's a really big number. We might say, hey, you know, a million or a billion. That's what we would say a lot of. But it's not just a big number. It's a complete number. We'll talk about this when we get to the millennium parts. But the idea here is you have 12 from the old, 12 from the new, multiplied all together times 1,000. You have the complete people of God, old and new testament. From start to finish, all of those trusting in Jesus. And this fits well with what we've learned in the I Am series. 
Jesus talking about the church as the temple, the true vine, the children of Abraham. Paul says this in Romans 9, verse 6, For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all children of Abraham belong to Israel as well, are his offspring. Well, who are they? Philippians 3 says, For we, we the church, are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul gets really explicit in Galatians 6, verse 16, where he calls the church the Israel of God. Now, I didn't want to just do an apologetic here and defend this, but I know we have a lot of misunderstandings about this, but I hope you can see this group, this 144,000, is the church, but not just the church. I hope when we read this list that your mind went all the way back to numbers. The last time we saw a list like this, listing the tribe and counting the people, what are they doing in the book of Numbers? They're counting God's army because they're headed into the land of Canaan to take on these pagan idolatrous nations. This is a picture of God's people in the wilderness. It's a picture of the church militant. God's going all the way back and saying, I'm going to seal my people so that they'll survive the judgment. They'll survive the wilderness. They'll survive this chaos that we learned about in chapter 6. And I'm going to seal them where this won't harm them spiritually. doesn't mean that they won't die or they won't be harmed physically. We have martyrs. But the idea here is that this tribulation, this judgment, will only serve to sanctify this people. This is what God's promising here, is that his people will make it through. They will be able to stand. They will make it home, safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. Now, how exactly will they do that? That's where we get into what this seal is. And first, let me talk about a little bit of what the seal is in the sense of what it does. Sealing in Scripture actually has a lot of different ideas. This image brings up a lot of things. One of those things probably we're most familiar with is authentication, ownership. We seal things that belong to us. In the ancient world, when a king would write a letter, they'd put a little you know, wax blob on there, and then they would put their ring on it and say, that belongs to the king. It's authentic, right? It's from the king. We know it's from him. They also sealed animals, they branded animals. We still brand animals. Like we were talking about earlier, the skags have their own brand. So to show that they belong to them. But in the ancient world, they also sealed people. Sometimes they would put something on their ear. Oftentimes it would actually be right on their foreheads. And this is actually what I think John is getting at. Well, Jesus really, when he gives us this vision in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3 says, Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants, remember, slaves of our God on their foreheads. What's God saying here? I'm marking out my people because they belong to me. I haven't just created them. He did, and we are owned by God because of that. But they belong to me through redemption. They have been bought. They have been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. That's part of the sealing here. God owns them. He owns us. And that means he also protects us. That's the other part of that seal, isn't it? When you brand that cow, then it shouldn't be taken. And if it is, then the wrath of the owner comes down on whoever tries to take that animal. Same idea here. God doesn't only say, you're mine. I will protect you. I will get you through this. 
Now do you see what gloriously good news this is then in Revelation 7? This sealing is a mark. It's a spiritual mark. I'll talk about why in a second. It's not a literal mark like some people say like a cross or tattoo on the forehead. No, it's a spiritual mark placed on all of God's people to show that they're authentic followers of Jesus. They belong to God and they are safe from his wrath. Not safe from trials, not safe from all physical harm. They will be able to stand the judgment of our Lord. Why? Because they're more holy than the rest? Is that why this list is like this? These are the only holy people of God? No. These are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Pulled from all these pagan, idolatrous nations. But they have been made holy because they are united to Jesus. They trust in the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. They trust that He lived the perfect life in their place. He conquered sin and death at the cross and rose again so that they might have newness of life. And now they are sealed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what makes Jesus the perfect Passover Lamb, isn't it? The doorposts were sealed in Exodus 12 by the blood of the Lamb, protecting the family from the wrath of God. And now God's people are sealed with the blood of the Lamb of God so that this judgment won't wipe them out, but will actually sanctify them in the end. So what is this seal? Well, the simplest answer I could probably give is it's the name of God. It's the name of God. Revelation 14, verse 1. I don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, and listen, who had his name, the name of the Lamb, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. In Christ, God has put his name on us. This is what we see in baptism, isn't it? It's not just a place where we confess faith. We talk about our profession of faith and we have this cute little ceremony with pictures. It's a naming ceremony. We're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You receive the family name. You've been adopted into the family of God. This is why I love to talk about even earthly adoption so much. And I think even of my son Finn, who's, you know, at one point he was not a horner. But now he will forever be a horner. He has our name. He, he will have the family inheritance one day. He's protected. He belongs to us. That's just a little taste of what we have in Christ. We've been given this family name, but not just a name. Ephesians 1 says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is God. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. God has given us his spirit to mark us off as his own, so that we can endure to the end. The Spirit is the deposit. It's the down payment on our inheritance. It's the taste of what's to come. And it's a guarantee, a guarantee that we will stand in the face of judgment if we are in Christ. Do you see how glorious this is? Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, we face trials. 
Yes, we struggle and we can feel so insecure, so vulnerable, and so uncertain about what the future holds. But in Christ, you have been given the very name of God, adopted into his family, sealed with the precious Holy Spirit. And we're not in heaven yet. We experience all kinds of trials. But if you're in Christ and you have been sealed, you are just as secure as if you are already there. That's the hope we have in the face of judgment, in the face of all the turmoil we see on the news. We are not the ones that lose hope because we have a hope that goes beyond this world. We have a hope in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful picture of what you've done in your son and to your people. Father, I pray we would trust you in light of all that we see and hear and all the struggles we may experience. Lord, help us to trust that you are with us, that you will keep us, because we know that you have sealed us with your spirit. You have brought us into your family as sons of God and we will be with you for all of eternity. May we be people that never lose hope because we know what you have done and will continue to do in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.